Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. A major backlog in COVID test results, the anatomy of a Doug Ford press conference, Justin Ling's new book on serial killer Bruce MacArthur, and Ontario police misusing a COVID-19 database. All that's coming up. Let's get to it. And here we have the numbers, 538. That's your case number today, but of course that's not the number to pay attention to, as I say, each and every day. Don't get too wrapped up in the daily numbers, but here is the number that's the jaw dropper today. This is the headline, really out of the daily number release. And that is, we have 82,473 tests pending. Pending. So really, if you look at that number, then you realize that the 538 case number, that's generally meaningless. If we're still waiting for 82,000 tests to clear, now we're clearing just shy of 40,000 a day. I mean, that's not bad, but still, there's still 82,000 in the queue. So that 538 number, Really, that's what's happened days and days ago. We're out of sync with the information coming in because we can't process the tests quickly enough. Let's check those hospitalization numbers because that's also a key number, and it's not good either. 162 plus 12, plus 12. The ICU number, 36, that's up plus 1. Now, to give you some context on that ICU number, during the modeling projections released by the province yesterday, what the officials said was, is anything under 150 in the ICUs, we can continue to have scheduled surgeries. Over 150, very difficult. Over 350, impossible. 36 is our current number. But it has been gaining. It gained five yesterday. It gained one more today. Lots to talk about over the course of this next hour. And I just, you know, I just might run on a little bit at the mouth about it. Joe Biden might have something to say about that. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown. All right, Vice President. Settle down. And we're going to take a look at some of the numbers, and we're also going to compare and contrast as we take a look at the Toronto number, 229, 101 in Peel, 66 in Ottawa, 43 in York Region. And 60% of those cases under the age of 40. Now, as we take a look at all those numbers and we line them up, are we lining them up the right way, Doug Ford? You're comparing apples and bananas. <laughs> that, that was the premier uh, yesterday uh, complaining that uh, you should not compare your apples to your bananas. Now, I, I don't know where you grew up, but I, where I grew up, it was generally most often the apples and the oranges together. Every once in a while, maybe a lemon and a lime would get together. They can't be compared. I have not heard the apples being compared with the bananas. Doug, hit it one more time. You're comparing apples and bananas. All right, let's get to the fruit comparisons here, because as you know, at 1 o'clock each and every day, Doug Ford gets up there in front of the province and, of course, 
the job that I have in news here at Global News, not only doing this radio program, but doing the nightly news at 5.30 and 6 on your television, I watch Doug Ford on the daily. I think maybe I've missed a handful over the course of the last six months. I took a couple of days off here and there, and I said, I'm not watching Doug, not doing it. So I know these pretty well right now, and I would like to take you here, if I may, through the anatomy of a Doug Ford press conference. This is this is a blueprint. Think of it as a scorecard. Maybe you can follow along at 1 o'clock. Just write these points down, and then you can tick them off as they go by. Generally, this is how it starts. The Premier comes out. He's got the teleprompter out there. He starts with a somber reading from the teleprompter. The trends are deeply concerning. Cases are doubling every 10 to 12 days now. By mid-October... Ontario could see a 1,000 new cases a day. And then, after the reading from the teleprompter ceases, before we moved in to move into the Q&As, because that's always important, plus you got to hand it around to a couple of ministers and a couple of VIPs, whoever's in the room, you get a shot to come up. And then, just before we go to questions, we go to the shout-outs. Uh, we're, we're just uh, an incredible province. I'm, I'm getting chills talking to you guys right now because it's it's absolutely incredible. And I'm so grateful. You have no idea. I couldn't do this myself. So uh, way to go, guys. Just keep going. We're, we're going to get through it. And I always say, favorite saying is uh, tough times don't last. Tough people do. We have the toughest people in the entire world right here in Ontario. That is Doug Ford speaking at his daily press conference yesterday. His shout outs. A regular feature of his updates is he calls out the absolute champions. And you want to be on the absolute champion side. Because after we get through the absolute champions, we then we get to the Q&As, and inevitably, inevitably, somebody, a reporter, often Randy Rath from CHCH, well, that wasn't the case yesterday, but often a reporter will just lob in a softball about, you know, people are doing the wrong thing, Premier. What do you what do you make of that? And then we fire right in to the angry rant section of our daily Ford update, featuring a couple of well-worn insults and admonishments. And you guys want to go out there and act like a bunch of yahoos? Like, that's being polite. I'm being polite with yahoos. Guys, give your head a shake. Just play the hits. That's Doug Ford. Doug Ford's like a top 40 radio station. You know, just play the hits. Bunch of yahoos, give your head a shake, give it a shot. All the good ones. So that's a regular feature. And so you you really, you want to be, if you can, an absolute champion and not a bunch of yahoos. And then you have another regular feature of the Doug Ford press conference. And that is the blaming of a government agency or some kind of bureaucracy. Now, sometimes it's your own bureaucracy and your own government agency. Yesterday, again, Doug Ford going off on Health Canada. Why it's going to take so long is, is just beyond me. When when we're in a pandemic, we're in a crisis, move, veet, 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 as, as they say, you know, with, with uh, Health Canada. I'm sorry, I don't want to always pick on Health Canada, but man, they, they, they got to move quicker, faster. We're in a crisis. That is Doug Ford, a little French there, a little en français from the Premier. 
Uh, may, maybe that means that when he's throwing down the French, you know what that always means? It always means you have aspirations to national leadership. Wait a second. Are you speaking French? You're going to run for prime minister. But I digress. And I, that is a regular feature. Uh, and, and, of course, here's another thing that tends to happen on the regular, because as Doug Ford is saying that, as he is actually saying that, I, I think maybe I may have been a half hour before, maybe not even a half hour before the news from Health Canada, we've approved that test. Well, we're so I, rolling it out day by day, and Mike, the reason we did it day by day until people can absorb it, comprehend uh, what we're doing, and that that's with anyone. I, if I go out here and just roll everything out and tell you 50 different things, people aren't going to absorb it, but we're doing it piece by piece every single day. And that was Doug Ford yesterday when asked about the six-point plan. And I talked about being slightly out of step. I'm not going to call the premier out for being out of step <laughs> On um, the Health Canada thing, like I say, it's possible he was not briefed about it. Obviously, he was not briefed about the approval from Health Canada before he uh, went off on Health Canada quicker, faster, feet, feet, feet. But I want to play that one more time, if, if if you don't mind, Loretta. Just hang on. Let me tee this one up again. Because you will recall, you know, recently there's been a lot of talk about, hey, where's our fall preparedness plan? We got a plan? Because you said, you know, you said in the summer, Doug Ford, you had a plan. And then you said, well, we're going to release the plan. And then you said, well, I can't tell you the plan all at once. And then when asked just yesterday, uh, you know, you've been dribbling this thing out for a while now. How about just releasing that plan? Back to Doug Ford. Well, we're rolling it out day by day. And Mike, the reason we did it day by day until people can absorb it, comprehend uh, what we're doing. And that that's with anyone. I, if I go out here and just roll everything out and tell you 50 different things, people aren't going to absorb it. But we're doing it piece by piece every single day. As Doug Ford yesterday, you will not be able to absorb it. And no word of a lie, the door does not close on him. As he leaves the room at Queen's Park, where he does his daily updates when he's not touring around the province, the door does not close, and the plan is released. It's out there. The Premier's office is like, well, here's your plan. I don't know what you guys are complaining about. Here's your plan. And you're like, well, well I, didn't think th- I, I didn't think I'd be able to absorb it. And here it is. There's nothing really in it. Not that it's not already been announced. So the plan is out. But things are serious out there. They are. The numbers are serious. And many are, you know, I'm talking doctors here. I'm not talking about talk show radio hosts. I'm talking about doctors with credentials are calling on the government to act now. If it is serious now, then let's act now. And here is the uh, good doctor, the head of all of this here in the province, Dr. Cook Your Turkey Williams, on what he is actually recommending right now. Uh, We have looked at different aspects, uh, uh, whether we would be returning to stage two or not. Uh, As I already said earlier to a question, part of stage two and one, two, and three was closure of all schools. 
we're not planning to close any schools. So we're not emulating those stages. It's a different time. We're coming into a different process. So we're giving recommendations and advice from our public health measures table, uh, the leadership of Dr. McEwen, and that's gone to Minister Elliott, and they'll be taken to the cabinet, and they'll make a decision. I think you'll have to wait to see what the details of that are after cabinet has considered our advice and our recommendations. So if I was able to understand what Cook Your Turkey was talking about there is it's different. It's different. You know what we're comparing here? We're comparing different kinds of fruit, Doug Ford. You're comparing apples and bananas. Just the apples and the bananas. The apples were in the spring. The bananas are now. That's why we are not doing more. In February of 2019, Bruce MacArthur was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of eight men. The 67-year-old landscaper will serve a minimum of 25 years in jail before the possibility of parole. That means he will be 91 years of age before he has a chance at getting out of jail. The judge in the case called MacArthur pure evil. And the families of the victims, many were shocked that there would even be a chance that Mr. MacArthur might be able to apply for parole in 25 years. This is Sean Cribben, who had a date back in July of 2017 with Bruce MacArthur. Mr. Cribben believes that were it not for Mr. MacArthur's roommate coming home and interrupting their encounter, that he would have been amongst the victims. Here is Sean Cribben. It's eight lives. It deserves more than 25 years. Those are eight people that won't see, have a future. Justin Ling is a freelance investigative journalist who has written a new book about the case called Missing in the Village. It is out now, and Justin joins me on the line. Hi, Justin. Hey, good afternoon. When you looked into this case... There's so many ways to look at it, but let's begin with what we learned about policing in this city and how it works when searching for someone like Mr. MacArthur. Yeah, I mean, we've learned by and large that Toronto police were hesitant to accept the possibility that a serial killer existed in the city. You know, you would you would think that there would be kind of a willingness to entertain that possibility uh, you know, over the years, considering, um, you know, some of the previous cases we've seen uh, in the city, um, you know, considering, you know, uh, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka, considering what we've seen in the West Coast with Robert Picton. But, you know, one thing that struck me from the very beginning was that Toronto police were willing to bend over backwards to provide explanations for suspicious disappearances, uh, basically anything other than the the idea of a serial killer operating. So, you know, I start the book, um, you know, looking at the first three disappearances uh, that occurred between 2010 and 2012. These were three men, all of whom disappeared from the gay village, uh, from Church and Wellesley area. You know, all three of them were South Asian, East Asian, or Arab. All three of them were around the same age, looked similar, similar build, similar facial hair, went to the same bars, run some of the same maps. Rather than conclude, which I think is you know the reasonable and the correct assumption in this circumstance, rather than conclude that a serial killer was operating, police managed in many cases 
to conclude that they had gone back, quote-unquote, home, as though, you know, most brown-skinned people are just constantly pining to leave the country where their friends and family are to go back to the country from whence they came. But that was frequently an explanation we heard from Toronto police. Um, you know, as this case went on over the years, you know, Toronto police seemed, um, you know, engaged with the idea that some of these men had overdosed, had run away, or had just otherwise sort of vanished and that there's, you know, there's no foul play to be considered. And it's something you heard the chief of police continue to insinuate even after Bruce MacArthur's arrest. So, you know, I think just as a starting point, Toronto police just do not seem engaged with the possibility that a serial killer could operate in Toronto. Um, luckily, they seem to have learned that lesson. You know, when um, you know men started disappearing and, and you know, winding up murdered in the Rexdale just in the last few weeks, you saw a very different response. You saw, you know, Toronto police uh, leap into action and very quickly conclude that it's in, you know, not only just possible, but likely that a serial killer was targeting, um, you know, racialized people in the city. So, you know, I think that is that was a huge failure that Toronto police seemed to have recognized. Was this driven because the police were dealing with a marginalized community in the gay village and, and a double marginalized community because we had men here who were, in many cases, not out? Yeah, I think it, it, it's hard not to conclude that that's, you know, a part of it. Um, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to say that the officers involved, um, you know, treated these cases with less respect uh, because they were racialized or because they were they were queer. You know, I, you know, in my dealing with this case, the officers who to handled these missing persons cases and eventually the homicide investigation, um, you know, took them incredibly seriously. You know, I've spoken to a lot of cops over the last few years. And, you know, what I consistently hear, especially from homicide detectives, is, you know, the last thing we want is an unsolved case. You know, it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't doesn't really have much of a bearing, whether they're queer or straight or racialized or white. Um, you know, having an unsolved case is having an unsolved case. That being said, you know, I think when you go through the chronology of this case, it's hard not to conclude that the police department as an organization afforded less resources, less time, less staff, less attention uh, to cases of, uh, you know, queer and racialized men going missing. You know, it's hard not to conclude that. You know, people frequently make, you know, the, the comparison, and I do in the book, you know, if these were three or five or six or seven, eight white women, it's, it's hard to imagine there would have been this sort of laissez-faire attitude happening over all of these years. And I, you know, I think it's the correct assumption. And I, you know, I think, but, you know, I think we have to go kind of even deeper than that and, and kind of talk about, you know, the fact that a lot of these men and a lot of their friends and family didn't have the social capital that apparently they needed to get the police involved to get the media engaged, to get the general public interested in these disappearances. In some of these cases, you know, the friends and family of these men, you know, did, were not entirely fluent in English. They didn't have the connections in the media or in the police or in government to get these cases, you know, in, 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 in the public spotlight. So, you know, I think to some degree we have to have a conversation about why it is that we live in a society where you, you might not get your case solved 
if you can't access the media, if you can't get the police to take you seriously. And that is a conversation that goes well beyond just the Toronto police. You know, that is much, you know, much, much broader conversation. And maybe we can't solve that overnight, but it's definitely worth something, you know, something worth thinking about. I think you make you make a great point, especially about, you know, media. Um, you know, I recall that when we got to a point where we were reporting on global news on the television on that evening news that there was increasing concern that, you know, there was possibly a serial killer in the villages prior to Mr. MacArthur's arrest. But that was late. That is very late after many disappearances. And it was, I think it's incumbent on the media, obviously it's not our job to investigate, but to be more responsive to communities when they start saying, hey, there's something here. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, I first started asking Toronto police you know, is there a serial killer in, in 2015? And I, I frequently got the impression that I was being hysterical, that I was being, you know, uh, alarmist. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, you, you kind of have to suspend disbelief to conclude that three men of, you know, of almost identical physical appearance would disappear from a three-block radius over a two-year period, and they wouldn't be connected. You know, it, it really, you know, it's kind of an Occam's razor thing. You have to come up with a pretty elaborate explanation to say that those three men went missing independent of each other with no connection or no commonality or no causal relationship whatsoever. You know, that is pretty extraordinary. But for some reason, the media and the police and the city at large deluded themselves with the belief that that's what happened. Now, you know, in the book, I try to break down some of the, um, you know, the foundations for this investigation, some of the, um, you know, really kind of bizarre backstory to how the police first kind of came on to these cases, you know, why they were left to kind of lie on a desk for many years. And eventually what, you know, thanks to some good police work, what eventually brought them to the conclusion that it was, in fact, a serial killer and that they could identify him. Um, but, you know, I, I think... When you really hone in on some of the details here, you start to realize there's some real systemic failures. You know, there was um, a failure by police to even notice some of these disappearances. Some of these men vanished and were never reported missing. You know, that is a, a failure that goes kind of well beyond this individual case. How is it that people could vanish from your city and you don't even know about it? You know, I think there's a lot of things here that that need fixing. And to their credit, Toronto police have addressed some of them, um, but in many other respects they haven't. And there's other police departments that are still ignoring the lessons from this case, from the Picton inquiry, and from other cases of this of this type. And, you know, I, I don't think it's impossible that this whole thing could happen again, that men or women could vanish, um, that cases would go unsolved, uh, and then another serial killer could operate in this country without us being any of the wiser. Justin Ling is the author of a new book, Missing in the Village. Justin, great to have you on the program. Thank you very much, and congratulations on the new book. Thanks. Do you have the app? Have you downloaded the app? You know there's an app for that now, the COVID-19 tracing app. How do you feel about that? Do you have concerns? Do you have worries? I know, sure, you've heard from the privacy experts and Kavukian, the former uh, former information commissioner, privacy commissioner. I think that was a privacy commissioner now at Ryerson University who says stamp of approval on the COVID-19 tracing app. 
Remember, it was announced by the federal government back on July the 31st, but actually two months later, this according to a new story uh, published this morning from globalnews.ca, two months after that announcement, with new coronavirus cases soaring across the country, federal officials are actually still trying to negotiate with provinces and territories so they can make the prediction that Trudeau made back on the 31st, that everybody would have access to the app, actually make that come true. Sure, it's available here in Ontario, but that is not the case in other parts of the country. As of the beginning of this month, which is today, uh, just four of 13 provinces and territories have the app. That's only 45% of the nation's population even having access The federal government has not enabled the COVID-19 app in Alberta, said a provincial health spokesperson in that province, and said, you got to ask Ottawa. Go ask Ottawa. So we did. And Health Canada said, quote, we're confident that several additional provinces will be coming on board very shortly. To date, roughly 2.9 million Canadians have downloaded the app, according to government data, and that is roughly 8% of the total population. That's not enough. That is not enough to make it effective. We need more, but there is going to be concern about it, not just from provincial governments, but from people themselves as they worry about their privacy. And why would you not be worried about your privacy when you hear this next story? Because an audit of a COVID-19 database, which is a controversial and now shut down portal for first responders, revealed that many searches from authorities were absolutely not required and should not have happened. To talk more about that, I'm pleased to welcome to the program Christine Van Gein, who is part of a group, a a civil liberties group, that made a freedom of information request that got this data. Welcome to the program, Christine. Hi, thanks for having me on. So give me the headline here. What did you actually find from the FOI? So what we did was we filed this FOI with um, the Solicitor General's office, and we got back a letter from the Solicitor General to all chiefs of police in Ontario outlining how they had done an audit that found misuse of the first responders portal. They had found that Uh, Police services had been conducting broad-based searches without specific addresses just for municipal postal codes. They'd been doing searches for other municipalities outside of their own police service area. They'd been doing searches for specific names not related to an active call for service. The, The database existed so the police could look up an address or a name and see if that person had tested positive for COVID and then take the necessary precautions with PPE. But instead, it looks like there were broad-based searches, and it appears that this privacy of a lot of people who never consented to have that information shared has been violated. Who who do we know about who accessed this information? So we know that the vast majority of searches were done by Thunder Bay and, sorry, not the majority, 40% of the searches that were conducted were by Thunder Bay Police and Durham Police. It had Thunder Bay at the time, um, during the time period when this portal was open, only had about 100 cases of COVID, but they took up about, you know, thousands of of searches um, in that area. So, and, and Durham region has uh, reported that what they had been doing was 
issuing wild card searches of the database, just inputting random information to see what would come come up. And as a result of that technique, they had their access to the database revoked early. But Toronto police actually never wanted access to the database and never did get access to the database because they were too concerned that it would be unreliable. And it turns out that that the database is unreliable because it continued to list people as COVID positive, even though that they they had recovered and also didn't include a lot of people who were waiting for test results. And it didn't include, you know, the names of people who might be in a home but are not listed at that address. So um, in the interest of police safety, it's better just instead of using an ineffective and um, incomplete database for police just to always take precautionary measures. I'm speaking with the litigation director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, Christine Van Gein. And just give me a, an update. The actual database has been shut down. When did that happen? Uh, it's, it ended, I think, at the end of um, at the end of August or early September. I'm not sure the exact date, but um, the Canadian Civil Liberties had actually filed a, a lawsuit against the government asking for it to be shut down. Uh, they terminated their lawsuit because the government did and indeed end that access. And and what is what is your concern with what you have found mm-hmm. from this FOI? So we have a couple of concerns. Our concerns are about my biggest concern is the searches for specific names that aren't related to an active call for service, because that is a violation of the Personal Health Information Protection Act. If if it's just a person who you know, is, there's no reason to look up their name. If it's just a, an issue of morbid curiosity, you know, the people who had their privacy violated need to, are actually required under the act, under the that Health Information Protection Act, to be notified that they've had their privacy violated. Um, so we've asked the privacy commissioner for an investigation into what exactly happened in those cases. And I'd also add the other concern we have is with the second wave of COVID sort of beginning now in the fall, we want the, to, to ensure that access continues to, to, to not exist. We still, we, we don't want this database to come back. There will be some that will argue that, you know, more information is always better, especially when it comes to first responders. So it, that, that is not the case when the information is incomplete and inaccurate because you don't want officers to rely on an inaccurate database and say, you know, I looked up the address and it said there's no COVID cases in that house. And then for them to knock on the door and, you know, there's, there's 10 people in the house that don't live there and one of them may have COVID. Um, it's better and actually safer for officers to go about their jobs the way we all go about our life, which is to use a masks. And early on in the pandemic, people were using gloves um, because we didn't know the level of contagion. And that's actually much safer for police. And it also protects police from this, you know, potential temptation, which it seems existed to, to use the database inappropriately. Christine, I began this segment by talking about the COVID tracing mm-hmm. app and whether or not people might be concerned about their own privacy and whether or not, I know these are two totally different things, but whether or not you think that when we hear stories like you've uncovered here, that that is going to have an impact on whether or not we will say, well, yes or no to that app. 
So two things. First, I do believe that the COVID Alert app does have privacy protections in place. Um, They don't centralize data in the app. So the type of abuse that happened in this database would not be possible with the COVID Alert app. So that's one of the reasons that I, as a civil liberties advocate, have it on my phone. I, I have faith in that. But second, it shows the importance of privacy by design. If the government wants us to trust uh, trust them, that they are going to protect our information. They need to demonstrate that they actually are doing that in instances where um, there isn't so much privacy. So uh, they needed to, to show us that they were trustworthy in this case. And I do understand why people are, are worried because, you know, they, they did not use this, this portal properly. Um, instead of relying on assurances from local police, the the government should have designed privacy into the actual data architecture of that database, as they've done with the COVID Alert app. Great perspective. Thank you, Christine. Uh, Christine Van Gein, who is the litigation director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Appreciate you being on the program today. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're coming up to Doug Ford, and if you were with us at the uh, beginning of the segment of the hour, we really broke down the anatomy of a Doug Ford press conference, where we start with a very, very serious and somber reading of the teleprompter, then we move into absolute champions, then we go to a bunch of yahoos, uh, then we complain about some kind of government bureaucracy, possibly one that we're actually in charge of, you defend Dr. Williams, and then you head out the door. That's generally, I don't know, am I, am I lining that up right, Doug? You're comparing apples and bananas. I see. I see. Apples and bananas. Uh, If you want to uh, revisit that portion of the program and listen to it several more times, because I recommend that, uh, or if you missed it, of course, you can listen to this program uh, in a podcast format. Podcasts. It's learning for your ears. It's exciting. And you can get that anywhere you download all of your regular potties. That is the Alan Carter Show right here on Global News Radio. Uh, And, of course, we will keep you up to date with whatever the province has to say today when Doug Ford stands up there. And who is it that's going to lob in the softball that just gets him to go right off? He said yesterday, he said, bunch of yahoos and give your head a shake. So I don't know if we'll get those again today. Uh, I, I, I'm always, I'm always here for a bunch of yahoos. You know, I'm always here for that. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter show weekdays starting at noon.